settle in. Good morning, all. This is second hour of our prophecy uh, of our prophecy class on Sinai and the events that will exude from that region. Yesterday we had you in the rugged confines of Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. And I'd like to just comment, I've had a couple of comments from you that uh, reminded me there is an alternative book out there that uh, the authors have suggested that perhaps Mount Sinai is over in this area because of some uh, burnt rocks and uh, Hebrew hieroglyphics, if you will, and artifacts. Um, I would suggest that we're clinging to the traditional site of Mount Sinai, which is there. These archaeological findings, which are now guarded by Saudis and which appear to represent part of a military installation or something top secret so that, of course, there's no access allowed to it. Sort of like Noah's Ark, they feel there are definite uh, things there, but no one can get to it. Uh, we're going to cling to this interpretation. It's hard to say what that might represent. It could well be uh, some of the priestly goings-on of uh, Jethro, you know, Moses' father-in-law. Out of any of the early dispensations, there could be Hebrew enclave that set up refuge there. For all we know, it could represent uh, an, an outpost of Jews who went down and not only settled in Masada under the persecutions of Hadrian and so forth, but might have gone on further down into the desert to set up a site of worship to try and preserve things. That's speculation. The fact that the crossing was in this area, we said yesterday that there is a coastal plain which would allow for an easy migration of a host to come down this way and then to eventually hook into what we understand to be the area itself. Now, yesterday we were setting up the topography of the place. We said that there is a valley located within the majesty of all of this. This big shadow through here would represent, as near as I can tell, where this valley of a meeting place might take place. We're told that it's, it's a gentle, constant ascent the scenery is stern. It's appropriate for the occasion of judgment, which would help to relay the concept of the goodness and severity of God being played out here. The giving of the law was associated with the two peaks of Horeb and Sinai. Together they formed two eminences on the extremes of a plateau some three miles long. It was before Horeb that the people gathered and heard the voice of Yahweh, and it was before Sinai that Moses ascended when he spake face to face with the angel name bearer. Mount Sinai is about 7,500 feet above sea level. Sinai itself has a cliff-like appearance rising precipitously like a huge altar set in a sanctuary. 
and is faced by a large plain capable of containing an immense gathering of people. Now, quoting from a Dr. Stanley who has hiked this area, the awful and lengthened approach as to some natural sanctuary would have been the fittest preparation for the coming scene. The low line of alluvial mounds at the foot of the cliff exactly answers to the bounds which were to keep the people off from touching the mount. The plain itself is not broken and uneven and narrowly shut in, almost all others in the range are. But this one presents a long, retiring sweep against which the people could remove and stand afar off. The cliff rising like a huge altar in front of the whole congregation and visible against the sky in lonely splendor from end to end of the whole plain is the very image of the mount that might not be touched and from which the voice of God might be heard far and wide over the stillness of the plain below, widened at that point to its utmost extent by the confluence of all the continuous valleys. So you visualize this place. It's a natural setting. The experience had a profound effect upon the people of Israel when they gathered there under Moses so that they entreated with him to intercede for them while they retired afar off. How much more awe-inspiring will be our visit to that mount at the time of judgment. Already the power of Yahweh will be visibly manifested in that the majority of the innumerable host there will have been those risen from the dead. There will be joyous reunion with loved ones who have died and now are raised again. Imagine the excitement in the air, intensified by the mix of emotions of unworthiness and joy colliding with the surroundings and the, pen, and the pending moment of their standing before the Lord. Now, if you'll turn up, please, Matthew 25. This is perhaps one of the most graphic accounts of the judgment scene when you kind of pick it apart. We have the parable of the sheep and the goats before us, and we have a number of little details. I want to come at this topic of the judgment from a number of different angles. In the footsteps of Brother Dave this morning, we tend to gloss the judgment, and there's much written about it, and it's there for our edification, and I submit for our motivation while there's yet still time. Now, in verse 31, the stage is set in in Sinai. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and and before Him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, reference to the Son of Man is appropriate here as our judge, because this is really a title given to him, in that he is taken out of man with our nature, and he has been afflicted in every manner that we have been, And he is a qualified judge, therefore. 
John 5, 20, 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and giveth life to whom he will, for the Father judgeth no man but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And back in verse 27 here then, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Reading from Hebrews 4.15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So who cannot be a better qualified judge to exercise this divine position? Now back in verse 31 of Matthew 25, we're told that, and all the holy angels with him, and we'll be looking a lot at what the role of the angels would, will be doing throughout this process, that the angels will play an important part in our judgment is beyond doubt. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, this throne, I submit, by context, is not the throne of David that Jesus will occupy in Jerusalem. This will be Christ's seat during the judgment process at Sinai, and it will be, I would submit for your consideration, this great stone outcropping on Sinai itself will be the throne of Jesus initially. This is a sobering mental exercise here to picture this scene of Christ on a great rock throne flanked by a host of angels who will assist him in the judgment process in the rugged and quiet place in Sinai where I'll bet the acoustics are so precise that you'll be able to hear a whisper. Now, in verse 32, "...and before him shall be gathered all nations." This, of course, superficially has been meant to imply perhaps a universal resurrection, which we do not believe in. This will be a gathering of only covenant people. Now, there will be gathered peoples out of all nations, Revelation 5, 9. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And we're told he will separate them one from another. This again is a vivid picture of the great shepherd discerning between the righteous and the wicked. And this is the moment of truth. All the decisions will be irreversible. So what we're getting here in Matthew 25 are, you might say, headlines of the judgment process. And now we'll go back here in a few minutes and fill in some of the details. The timing of this separation is hard to tell. If it occurs early in the process, the anxiety will only be heightened as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now this this language suggests that there will be a preponderance of goats from amongst which the sheep are extracted from, thus fulfilling the words, many are called, but few are are chosen as a shepherd divideth his sheep from or out of the goats. Sheep are chosen to represent the faithful and worthy because of their characteristics. And clearly it's character which Christ will judge. Looking at verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, 
from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Sheep by nature are dependent, they're submissive, they're willing, they're obedient, they're friendly. They're harmless. You can walk out into a pack and not feel threatened. They manifest devotion. They're guileless. They're loving. They are full of bounding energy. If you bottle feed and bring up a lamb, it'll follow you just like a pet dog. I think of the ones that uh, my son Joel had to bottle feed. My goodness, they'd follow you around the barnyard. They would try to squeeze in the door when you went into your house, past your leg. Um, That's the type of bonding that they're capable of. All these characteristics will be found in the faithful. Dependence upon the good shepherd, humble submission towards God, willing obedience to do his will, and recognition of their need of fellowship with their brethren. Goats, on the other hand, are independent, (coughs) solitary, disobedient, willful, and callously selfish. They are prideful, confident in their own strength, refuse to assist their needy brethren, disobey divine laws, manifest a willful disposition, and they callously disregard the needs of others and are therefore unfit for a place in the kingdom. The sheep are directed to the master's right hand, the goats toward the left. The right hand is the symbol of power and divine authority and will be the reward of the righteous. I was thinking of um, Brother Wood's picture of the schematic of the Passover, perhaps, and there I was interested to find John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, was on Christ's right hand, and I noticed that Judas was positioned on his left. Psalms 16. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Having made his judgment, the judge then gives his approval and acknowledgement of the faithful and his rejection to the unfaithful. Now, verse 37 is interesting. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? Their faith generated their works, did it not? Which became a part of themselves. Their natural modus operandi was an outpouring of works and service at every opportunity. It was a natural. It was a part of their personality. It wasn't something that they had to say, let's see, I need to get in some works this week. They knew no other life and even had to be reminded by the judge, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And this needs to be our aim and model as well, brethren, and there's still time to perfect that category. Now let's take a little sidebar and look at the basis of resurrection and judgment, which is pure review for you all. 
We're told in Romans 5, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience made were many sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be, be made righteous. The sin of Adam and Eve, therefore, resulted in their expulsion from the Garden of Eden and their access to the Tree of Life. In this state of alienation from our deity, we know amongst us, and we speak it with confidence, it's Adamic condemnation. All who were born of Adam without exception inherit this condemnation. Romans 5.12 Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And we are all born, then, without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, referencing Ephesians 2.12. Those responsible to the judgment seat in Christ will have had to come out of Adam and have to come into a state of covenant by responding to the living God, a belief in the promises made to Abraham and a life faithfully so doing in the keeping of sacrifice through an understanding that at some point in time the Lamb of God would arrive in history and ratify their beliefs. In previous dispensations, justification was realized through the coats of skins, burnt offering, circumcision, the keeping of the Passover, all of the other altar sacrifices, and lastly for us, since the sacrifice of Christ, the knowledgeable act of baptism and the remembrance of Christ through the emblems on a regular basis, all kept under an umbrella of faith. So on the overhead, we have a little progression, don't we? We have the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and the provision of coverings for Adam and Eve, And when we put on Christ in baptism, we understand in Galatians 3 that that word put on means to invest with a garment, does it not? It takes a thought right back to the garden. We have then the Mosaic sacrifices. We have all of the Joshua types, which includes you and me, which says, as for me and my house, this is how we do it, and this is how we worship our God. Jesus ratifies this through his crucifixion. And today we continue on in the emblems on a regular basis and we anticipate this blessed opportunity in the kingdom age as well. For as many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for is none other name under heaven that man might be saved. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There's no middle ground or option experiencing a blush or a topical hearing of the truth does not make one responsible to the judgment seat of Christ. So therefore, our covenant relationship through baptism accomplishes a number of things. It removes the condemnation and the alienation we inherited from Adam. We are therefore reconciled to God and come into a state of justification and fellowship and regarded favor. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we now enjoy the forgiveness of sins. We become heirs of the promises to Abraham. We have Christ as our mediator and high priest, giving our feeble prayers audience to the very ear of deity. 
We now enjoy through this relationship exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature at a given point in time. To say nothing of the countless little blessings that we enjoy on a daily basis that we are unable to number or even see. Now, and lastly, we have the certainty of resurrection and the opportunity for judgment. Now, I use this word opportunity for judgment. And you might wonder, is this really going to be a fun experience? It's an experience that our whole life funnels down to. It's the last hurdle that all of us have to contend with and get beyond. Look at it as an opportunity, I say, because it represents closure on our lives. It represents closure. Assuming we made that covenant decision with our eyes open and our heart and minds fully aware of the responsibility involved, we have lived a life after the model of Jesus. We have plumped up a vision which has sustained our sojourn of a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. We have lived in the heavenlies and we have walked in the halls of Ezekiel's temple in our mind's eye. Like the Apostle Paul was given a glimpse of the eighth day, we too have been given a glimpse of the eighth day through the bulk of the scripture that we now have in our possession. We live at the end of the age, but we have all of scripture to draw upon. Nothing is left to chance. Plus, we have all of our resource materials. There is no excuse that we can't be prepared and that we can't find comfort through the scriptures. We have the joy set before us in total. Thus, with boldness or confidence, we anticipate the judgment scene at Sinai, for it's the door to the glory of Yahweh and to the majesty that eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of the man the things which God hath prepared for them, for them that love him. So here we sit, all of our lives, the older, more time. Christ is the door. We look through that door all our life, don't we, for what lies beyond. We have to get past the judgment. That's the door. That's the next step for us. Because we have set our hand to the plow and not looked back, this is where it all shakes out for us, doesn't it? We say... This is where the rubber meets the road. I like the verse in John 6, verse 68. Jesus asked of his apostles, Will you also go away, or will you also leave me at this time? Peter answers, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where else do we go? Why bail out now? This is where it's at. Who will be called to judgment? We've seen and it's well established that it is covenant that made man responsible to the resurrection and that upon the return of Christ, his household also referenced as his servants and the responsible will be resurrected. Within the household, there are two classes identified as the faithful and the unfaithful. 
the faithful to be raised to incorruptibility and to live and reign with Christ, while the unfaithful will be relegated to the lake of fire. Now, I want to look into the role of angels in the judgment process. We have scripture that helps define the role of angels as they facilitate this entire process. The angels will accompany Christ when he returns to judge, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And this, again, is not David's throne I'm submitting. It's the great throne that will be erected at Sinai. The results of the judgment will be declared in the presence of the angels. Luke 12, 8-9. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Verse 9. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Revelation 3, 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Another point. The angels will be involved in the removal and punishment of the unworthy. Matthew 13, verse 49 and 50. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and separate the wicked from among the righteous and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So let's kind of go back and sort some of this out. The angels, firstly, are ministers to the hopeful. That the angels will be involved in the judgment of the saints is particularly appropriate in view of their close involvement with uh, our lives during our probationary period. That makes sense, doesn't it? Who knows us best but our guardian angel throughout our sojourn? Psalms 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about those who fear him and delivereth them. Now, the word encampeth is rendered to build a tent around. And it's much like the meaning of the word Passover, which means to hover over. The word ministering, as in ministering spirits, is rendered that which pertains to the public service, especially of the temple. The angels are the figurative keepers of the temple after the manner of the Jewish custom to guard the temple in Jerusalem. We're told that our bodies, that we are a temple of God, aren't we? So, our angel has an obligation to watch over his aspiring living stones, doesn't he? Only now and during the long Gentile night have they watched over the living stones for the new Jerusalem. Rotherheim here says, and this is good, Are they not all spirits doing public service for ministry sent forth for the sake of them who are about to inherit salvation? Now consider Matthew 18 verse 10. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angel do always behold the face of my God who is in heaven. 
or consider Acts 12:15. You have Peter here is imprisoned and he appears to Rhoda at the gate. How did he get out of prison? But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, it is his angel. And previously in verse 7 to 10 of that scenario, Peter's angel was instrumental in releasing him from prison. So they were tuned into this concept then. It's most probable that our angel, the one assigned to each of us and who has charted us through this time of probation, the one who knows us intimately, has picked us up when we have fallen down, will be the one to guide and to prepare our final standing before Christ. Now let's look at the various books of judgment here. The scripture speaks of two books that will determine the destiny of every responsible person at judgment. We have a book of the life, and we have the book of life. Although literal written books are not needed for our deity, needless to say, they could be reproduced out of cyberspace, and that's that, by a snap of a finger. But there is evidence that the angels probably have a ledger of some sort of each of our lives while we are in their charge. The word for book in Hebrew is sifra, and its meaning is a writing, a book. The Greek word is biblios, and it's signifying a written book, scroll, or volume. And this is what John was told to eat in Revelation 10, wasn't he? A little book. Now, Moses evidently believed that there was a literal book of life, and this is the clear implication of Exodus 32:32. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. So let's talk about the book of the life. It appears to be a kind of a day book in which the daily lives of the saints are recorded. Event for event, through our trials, tribulations, triumphs, failures, sins, acts of righteousness, and acts of crass. By this means, the growth and development of one's character is carefully traced throughout their probation and documented. At either their death or at the return of Christ, the account will be taken and the divine decision decision made as to whether or not that saint will have his name inscribed in the book of life. Now, both books would be referenced at the judgment seat. The day book would be used by our angel in charge of our sojourn to review our life and probation, while the book will be used by Christ to pass final judgment. So there has to be a transfer from one to another, it appears. Psalm 56, 8. Thou tellest, or numberest, my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy books? Rotherham says, My wanderings hast thou recorded. In Isaiah 43:25, we might infer the converse when sins are, cut, are forgiven by Yahweh. I, even I, am he who blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. 
And now we have Malachi 3.16. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And verse 17, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So the rendering of the word written here means to write, to engrave. And so once again we have the suggestion that there is an actual literal recording of some kind going on. Revelation 20.12, and this is speaking of the judgment at the end of the thousand years, but it gives us some more clues which I think we may apply to the judgment that's imminent. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. So... The plural reference to books, I think, would be the many books representing the account of every person's personal life, according to their works. The works or deeds are what is recorded in the books as this constitutes an indication of one's character in so doing. And this little discussion should refute in itself the debate within Christadelphia whether works are to be minimized against faith. It's a natural outpouring of faith. But works are, are a visible indication of where one's head is at. Isn't that true? Recall in Matthew 25, the righteous servants had to be reminded of their works before they were because they were a natural progression of their lifestyle. Yet these things are recorded to give an account as to one's character, and they'll paint a picture of that individual. Was one niggardly, self-serving, or did one attempt to feed the sheep and serve his brethren? Now let's look at the book of life. There may be only two entries in this book. At the beginning, when one enters into covenant, and for us that's baptism, and the final entrance by the assisting angel of our sojourn. Philippians 4.3 And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So conceivably there will be many whose names will have been blotted out along the way. Revelation 3.5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. At the judgment seat, then, only those whose names appear in the book of life will be granted immortality. Daniel 12.1 tells us, And at that time shall Michael stand up, which is rendered he who is like God, and this would apply to Christ in our understanding. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Revelation 21.27 and there shall in no way enter into it anything that defileth, neither he that worketh abomination, 
or maketh a lie, but they who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And maketh a lie is rendered false teaching. So this helps us to understand the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, or the bema of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, i.e. during his life, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, Rotherham's translation again is interesting, and it captures the true sense. For we all must needs be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may get back the things done by means of the body according to the things which he practiced, whether good or corrupt. We shall receive in body the reward or punishment due according to that which we have done. So in other words, we reap what we sow. If one preferred the world... He'll get the world as it burns up and disintegrates around him. If one preferred the heavenlies, he shall receive that beginning with the immortality that will be bestowed. Now, I've spent some time on this, on the mechanics, which you're all familiar with. But um, in considering it, I think the reality of it is needs to be reflected upon. That if we could see our particular angel, as in this little overhead, sitting in the corner of our house at the end of each day, writing down in his ledger things we know that transpired that day about us, how would we live our life differently? So, although it's a negative, I want to spend a little time on what happens to the rejected. Really much is written about it. And Daniel 12, 2 references those who awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Romans 2, verse 5 to 10. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation and the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds and to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, there is the gift of eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Now, it appears that punishment will be meted out in degrees according to the principles relayed in Luke 12, verse 47 to 48 regarding the faithful and careless servants. There Jesus said in verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. So there's a lot placed on one's ability to finish strong, regardless of her age. It's like a runner in a race. Finish strong. Verse 47, And that servant who knew his Lord's will and prepared not, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. 
The wicked will have their shame revealed before their brethren, we're told. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, which we said was manifesting uncovered sin, and they, his brethren, see his shame. Luke 12, verse 2. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hidden that shall not be known. Verse 3. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Another point. The punishment of the rejected will be suffered amongst the nations described as outer darkness. In Matthew 22, verse 12 to 13, Jesus is speaking as the king, and he says in verse 12, And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in here not having a wedding garment? And uh, we can surmise that he was speaking of a goat, perhaps, standing amongst the sheep. And we're told he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is possible that the current generation, depending upon the level of their sins, may be returned to their homes from whence they were taken to experience the ridicule of their acquaintances, their colleagues, their peers, which really is a ridicule of the gospel that they supposedly embraced, and to live out the terror of their world or their countryside literally burning up. By open shame and ridicule for the rejected is brought official closure upon that saint's life. It will serve to nip any sad farewells and attempts to plea bargain with the angels and with Christ or with any of their brethren. The lines will have been drawn between the clean and the unclean, and that will set the stage. It represents closure. Quoting from Robert Roberts in Nazareth Revisited, page 393. A man dismissed from the judgment seat first suffers the agony of having his shame seen, Revelation 16. He is publicly condemned in the presence of his fellow servants and a multitude of angelic hosts, Revelation 3, 5, 9, and Luke 12. Next he departs, but not whither he wills. He might choose to bury himself in the forest or wander wide over the earth or ocean or find refuge in death. The sentence orders his expulsion to the outer darkness, which still reigns in the world for a while after Christ's return. In the outer darkness, the world of the ungodly, organized as the devil and his angels, alias the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, Revelation 19. There is the marshalling of its forces for the war of the great day of God Almighty in which they make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb shall overcome them. Still quoting. First judgment impends at that time of which the world is unconscious. Christ of whose presence they are not aware is about to be manifest in flaming fire taking vengeance. The sentence of expulsion consigns its unhappy objects to participation in the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. 
Their fate is to depart from me, you cursed, into the Aeonian fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Into the countries of the condemned, the whole multitude of the rejected will be driven to shift for themselves among a cruel population for whom judgment waits. Mortals as they are, it is no stretch of the imagination to realize the suffering of body, the anguish of mind, incidental to such a fearful situation without home or friends or acquaintances or means of living, wanderings as vagabonds like Cain till the maturing judgment of God culminates in the terrible outbreak of destruction and desolation long foretold. Still quoting, this hour of judgment will take time to run. The few stripes will probably be exemplified in the shortening of the term of suffering. Such will die before the worst comes. Many stripes will be seen in the case of those wretched children of disobedience who will be preserved through all the terrors of the time of trouble such as never was and survive to be engulfed in the finishing strokes of judgment by which wickedness will be finally overthrown and the way cleared for the kingdom of God. And I would add perhaps being ejected into the immediate locale amongst a seething and rabid Arab and world population as if thrown into the suburbs of Baghdad today. So we'll let that settle and next time we'll consider what happens to the children at the judgment seat.